Well, before I get started, I have a couple of disclaimers that I got to uh, share with y'all. Um, first off is uh, I don't use PowerPoint, so, um, uh, so no slides or anything. Um, that's because I like hearing pages turning. Uh, I don't judge those of you who have to do clicking. In our, our, but we're going to be jumping all over the, the scriptures today. Um, so with my medical condition, my diagnosis, and my surgery, uh, there is the distinct possibility uh, because of where everything happens between a cognitive and a linguistic area of my brain. So there is a possibility that I might forget a word when I'm in the middle of a sentence. That has happened to me now at this point like hundreds of times. Um, that's usually something that might be a little bit more abstract. I've gone over everything enough times where I think I know what I want to say. But just so you guys know, if there's an awkward minute pause, it's not because of you. Um, and uh, preaching is not really my desire. It's not really uh, much of, uh, it's not an ambition of mine. Uh, and to illustrate that, when after I already had this scheduled, um, I had two different friends that I met in two different uh, areas of my life. Uh, or like time frames, one I met in my early 20s, one I met in my early 30s in two different states. And I told them, I said, hey, I'm preaching a sermon. And they both had the same reaction. It was, really? And so this is not really my thing. Um, and so uh, teaching, so some of you have seen me teach like in a classroom setting. I am on fire to do that. I love dialogue and all this kind of stuff. Preaching is not my thing. Um, but uh, what brought me up here really is uh, um, I knew, I didn't give you the tissue disclaimer yet, um, I knew I had some stuff to share. Uh, last disclaimer, um, I'm sorry I didn't supply tissues for everybody. Um, but I, yes, they're coming from me. Um, and uh, no judgment if they don't come from you, but they're going to come from me. Um, I've been steering around this topic for uh, a really long time. Uh, God has radically changed my life uh, over the last couple months. Uh, and so a lot of stuff that I have, uh, that I'm going to share today um, is going to be review for uh, Gospel Community Group because they've heard me just kind of spew out a lot of this stuff. But just so you guys know, Gospel Community Group members, um, you haven't heard everything. So, uh, so it's not all, uh, all review. Um, so, uh, yeah, get your thumbs ready, get your pages ready, because we're going to be flipping around the scriptures um, a lot. Um, I'm also kind of, kind of old school in regards, to, um, in regards to sermons. I like sermons with titles, uh, and I titled the sermon, The Heaviness of God's Grace. Um, and and it kind of seems like an odd title when I came up with it, and it, it kind of seemed weird, but why did I entitle it this way? Um, yeah, I'm doing a topical sermon. I didn't really want to do a topical sermon. I wanted to be in like one verse and, and kind of anchor in there and like maybe just refer to a couple different things. But, but really, um, I said there's, there's, there's too much. There's too much to share. Um, and so why, why did I say heaviness of God's grace? Well, I mean, there's a lot of different aspects and a lot of different things where you, you can look at the grace of God. Um, I mean, there's like the grace of God in salvation. There's the grace of God in sanctification. There's 
common grace and their specific grace. And so it's like when you're really like seeking to understand the grace of God and how it operates um, in the physical world and spiritual world and all these kind of things, it, it just be, it can become um, very, uh, there's a lot to handle and hence the, the heaviness of it. Um, there's another aspect to it as well that brought this kind of title um, but if I say it now, it's not really going to make a whole lot of sense. And so we'll address it later. So Gospel Community Group, you, you will have heard this reference before. We're going to take this. We're going to put it in a box. We're going to wrap it with a bow. We're going to put it up on a shelf. Or since it's around Christmas time, we'll put it under the tree. So, um, but we'll, we'll unwrap it in a little bit. Um, and uh, honestly, this can be about an eight-part sermon series. I'm not promising as such. I got about 35 minutes, so here we go. Um, but what is God's grace? Or what is grace? Grace is getting what you don't deserve. It's that simple. Um, it is different than mercy. Mercy is not getting what you do deserve. But God's grace is mentioned so much in the scriptures that we need to focus on it. And, but in order to really start with the depth and the heaviness of it, we need to understand uh, what it is and why it is we don't deserve it. So I ask you to first open up to Mark 14. And we're going to look at verses 32 to 36. They went to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, Sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John, and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. Jesus is sorrowful, even to death. Um, I was reading out of ESV. There's a couple of different translations that I actually like a little bit better, because I think it illustrates it a little bit more clearly. The New American Standard says, he said to them, my soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. And the NIV also says, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. And so when we talk about what is grace, receiving what we do not deserve, we need to understand that the death that Christ was looking at was necessary for me and for you. And that sorrow was caused by me and by you. Jesus knew that it was approaching. His death was approaching. And it's not just the physical death. As terrible as it is to think about what actually was crucifixion. Is that he would be embraced by and that he would experience the divine, perfectly righteous wrath of God the Father that is clearly and definitively 
deserved by me and by you. Our sin is very real. And so as much as I would like to come up with a, uh, a nice metaphor to kind of deepen that, um, I'm going to... Uh, I'm going to read a couple verses of a hymn that I think amply illustrates a lot of that. And it's Man of Sorrows, what a name. Um, The first three verses are are really beautiful in regards to emphasizing this. It's Man of Sorrows, what a name. For the Son of God who came ruined sinners to reclaim. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Bearing shame and scoffing rude. In my place, condemned he stood, sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah. What a Savior. Guilty, vile, and helpless we, spotless Lamb of God was he. Full atonement can it be. Hallelujah. What a Savior. So we need to marinate in the fact it is not a concept, it is not an idea, it is not a notion that we are sinners and that we deserve above all things God's righteous judgment for our sin. And there is a depth in that that is often forgotten, downplayed, or flat out neglected. So when we look upon God's grace, it is necessary for us to have that aspect on the forefront of our minds is that we are receiving what we do not deserve because of how fully what we do deserve. So I don't want that to be lost in regards to talking about and disclosing and discussing and explaining God's grace and how it operates in our lives because we don't deserve it. So, moving on. So what is God's grace used for? Hinted about that already. Salvation, obviously. Um, You know, seen in the previous, what we were just talking about. We recognize our sin. We cannot live up to God's standard due to his holiness and our unholiness. We see our due penalty. We see how God has provided a way. He has provided the Savior. And that God acts through his divine grace to provide salvation to us as sinners. Okay? What else? What else is God's grace used for? God's grace is used for sanctification. God's grace, like you look at Ephesians 2, 8 9, God's grace is working in our lives to put off self and to put on Christ. Uh, it helps us to practically see our sin in individual areas in our lives and that where we need to seek God's guidance in living and in all of that. Um, but really, like, what's the result of those two things? We salvation and sanctification, what, do the, what is the result, what does that establish for us? Those things don't just stand on an island by itself. Those things actually foster something. And what that does, 
is that it fosters a relationship. It is because of those two things that we have a relationship with God, right? And so, uh, I mean, and it's not, it's not something that is, like, it's not far away. It's, it's close. There's no longer, like, say, for instance, there's no longer an earthly priesthood. Christ himself is our high priest. There's no ceremonial or liturgical separation between us and God if we are saved and sanctified. Um, you have an individual relationship with God. You don't have to turn here, but I'm just going to read these verses. Romans 5, 1 and 2. Just, just listen. It says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through him we have also obtained access by faith into his grace in which we stand and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. It's a beautiful thing. And we think about relationship a lot. I hear that a lot in regards to um, just a lot of ministries and a lot of evangelism. And, and you know, we hear this aspect. It's like, you know, our, our religion is a relationship. 100% agree. Absolutely. That's exactly what it is. But I want to bring out a little, a, another kind of aspect of it that I think that is a little, um, I'm not going to say underplayed, but maybe it's just an aspect that's not necessarily thought of a lot. Um, is that we have a relationship, we also have fellowship with God. Think about that. We think about our relationships that we have individually. We think about our, our friends, our spouses, our children. And we could think of, oh, yeah, I want to have righteous fellowship with them. But you think about the fellowship that we have established with God as individual believers, that we have fellowship with God. So now I invite you to turn 1 John 1, 1 through 4. And Tim gave me a... Gave you a little little prep in regards to preaching in that section, and I was really happy that he didn't actually like super emphasize this section that this one little verse that I'm going to talk about. Um, as he was preaching through this section, I was thinking, "All right, perfect, perfect." First John one, one through four. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes which we looked upon and have touched with our hands, concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest, and we have seen it, and testify to it, and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us, that which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you, that you too may have fellowship with us. Okay, stop there. Is that John is emphasizing the fact that Christ himself came, I was with him, I saw him, I heard him, and this is the foundation of how we can have fellowship with one another. I tell you this so that we can have fellowship with one another. You look at the last half of verse 3, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. If you are saved, if you are sanctified, you have fellowship with God, not just a relationship. We have fellowship with God. And so God's grace 
does not only provide the way for our relationship with him to be established, but to be fostered and deepened. Think about that. God's grace not only establishes our fellowship, but helps it to be fostered and deepened. So, how does God operate? Now, let's go to 2 Corinthians 12. I'm going to camp out here for a little bit. This is Paul. And I don't have a massive amount of time to go through all the verses and all the difficulties and everything that he has already experienced. However, um, he's talked about all the torture that he's experienced, the difficulty that he's experienced in ministry. Uh, he has already had um, conflict with other apostles. He's had conflict with uh, other um, faithful um, believers that are serving alongside with him. Um, the man has lived a very massively difficult life already before he goes into experiencing and talking about this. And so the last thing that he talks about before these verses is that he talks about how God gave him a glimpse of his direct glory. And we start in verse 7, 2 Corinthians 12, verse 7 through 10. So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, that's the glimpse of God's glory, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. So, Paul is seeing this beautiful and majestic glimpse of the glory of God And then it says, so to keep me from becoming conceited because of what he has seen. And I think of like all the stuff that Paul has experienced thus far. And it's like, is that really going to happen? Like the guy's talking about all the things that he's, all the pain and suffering in regards to ministering uh, for Christ. And... It's like, is that really a, like, really? Um, and as I'm, as I'm trying to understand, or as I was trying to understand, like, okay, Paul got a little tiny glimpse of regards to God's glory, and he can get conceited and think too importantly of himself. I'm like, is there maybe another example of that? Um, actually, there is. You guys don't have to turn here. Um, I'm thinking of Moses, the waters of Meribah. Um, 
you know, Israel complains that there's no water. They do the whole thing, like, why did you take us out of Egypt? Because we're all going to die. Moses and Aaron approach God about it in the tabernacle. God's presence shows up in the tabernacle. God tells him, hey, see that rock over there? Go talk to it, and then water's going to come out of it. Um, Moses gathers everybody, and this is what he says. Hear now, you rebels. I don't, God didn't tell him to say that, but that's the way he started it. And Moses says, shall we bring water for you out of this rock? So instead of speaking to the rock, Moses takes the staff and cracks it like a baseball bat. Water comes out, Israel is sustained, and all the cattle and all this kind of stuff. But then God says, because you did not believe in me to uphold me as holy in the eyes of the people of Israel, therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land that I have given them. So the whole promised land thing, yeah, Moses was out. You can get up to the border. And think about like what Moses had experienced in his life before then. Like he was up on the mountain speaking with God. God's glory reflected off of his face for a while after that. And Moses got conceited enough in that to undermine what God was seeking to accomplish to his children of Israel. So, like, so we asked that question about Paul. Like, could he, could he really become conceited in regards to the immense blessing and the exposure of, to God's glory like, to his people? And the answer is, yeah, absolutely. This was a distinct and specific temptation that Paul admits to that he would encounter and that he would potentially embrace despite the beauty that he was able to see, that God shared with him. Paul knew, I am weak in this regard. So what was used? A thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan, And the purpose is labeled again. It says, verse 7, So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. A little Bible study note on there. Um, The phrase, to keep me from becoming conceited, it's twice in one verse. Whenever anything's repeated, it's important. It's something that Paul really wanted to emphasize. Like, this is why this is happening to me. So, in verse 8, three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. Paul's desire, his prayer, and his reaction to this affliction is not wrong. There's nothing that is sinful or unrighteous in any of that. For him to ask God, please take it away. And God says, no. So, here's some testimonial parts in regards to this. I didn't want this whole thing to be a testimony, but I know that that's going to be some elements. Because in the midst of what I've been experiencing medically is I've heard this question a lot um, and, and I know that it's out of, it's out of love and care um, and people's desire that 
you know, I wouldn't have to experience what I've had to experience and what I will experience because of what's going on with me medically is that people ask, like, why you, Daniel? Like, why is God doing this to you? And, uh, you know, really, you know, when people know, like, what my life entails, and it, it can be overwhelming to a lot of people. Um, it's overwhelming to me at times, uh, you know, and there will be times in the future where it's overwhelming to me. I know that because uh, I'm weak. But really, like, when we talk about, when, when people observe, like, my life from the outside, um, really, I got a lot of stuff easy. I live in America. That in and of itself is a massive amount of ease. Um, I have a career. Um, I have a very good career. Um, my family loves the Lord. Um, I have friends that have shown me so much love that if I were to relay those stories, that's a few sermons in and of itself. Um, and I'm not just talking about in the midst of what I am experiencing right now. I'm talking about just the entirety of my life. Um, but speaking about the overwhelming stuff, you know, it's like not everything has been easy. You know, I never remember my parents ever being married. Um, Roxy was uh, paralyzed 32 days after we got married. Um, most people don't know that early on. That's not something that I, I bring on uh, early in a, a relationship or friendship. So it's probably a surprise to hear that from me, for some of you. Um, you know, she requires assistance from me every day. Um, when all that happened, when Roxy and I got married, I was in seminary. I had already finished one year of seminary. I was planning on serving the Lord. I was, I was going into pastoral ministry. That's what I wanted to do. Um, I had to drop out because I still had to work, and Roxy needed, needed help. Um, and that's just what I had to do. And is it something that I'm pursuing again? Probably not. Um, I had to move out uh, or away from the area uh, where I was raised, um, we ended up coming up here. Um, I had to leave a lot of good friendships. Um, and a lot of, most of my extended family relationships. Um, you know, I had a sweet relationship with my sister. It ended tragically, and now she's since passed away. Um, you know, just, I mean, more recently, Roxy has experienced a lot of heightened uh, pain and fatigue has required more help than we had initially. Um, not just for me, but from our kids. Um, and it's brought about more challenges. And then in, in the midst of this, I get diagnosed with a, here's, here's the big word, uh, the oligodendroglioma, which is basically a brain tumor. That's what I have. Um, so a portion of my brain was removed. I got that. Um, and then I got chemotherapy and radiation that's coming on board. Probably going to start this week. And so, why me, God? It's not necessarily, uh, uh, I mean, like I said, that question was asked due to love and care. I totally get it. 
But what we're going to do with this one is we're going to take it. We're going to put it in a box. We're going to wrap it up. We're going to put it underneath the tree. And we'll get to it in a second. Let's go back to it. Go back to 2 Corinthians 12, verse 9. But he, God, said, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. So, we already know what the purpose of Paul's affliction is. It's to keep him from becoming conceited, right? He mentioned it twice. So, the other question is, what is the scope? What is the focus of God's grace? We see it operate clearly in the affliction's results. The affliction's result is for Paul not to become conceited. But where is God's grace in the affliction? We see that God says, my grace is sufficient for you. I would say that God's grace operates fully and clearly in the affliction, not just in the results of the affliction. So in other words, the affliction itself is a mechanism of God's grace. God's grace is operating not despite the affliction, but through the affliction. So some people might say, this, like, well, that's just kind of semantics, Daniel. It's like, well, I think once we slow down and we really think about it, that the conscientious understanding of the difference of it is massive. So some people may hear that and they're like, whoa, 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 hold on, hold on. Daniel, are you saying that my medical condition is a mechanism of God's grace? Are you saying that my financial catastrophe and issues are, are a mechanism of God's grace? Are you saying that the untimely death of my unbelieving family member is a mechanism of God's grace? Are you saying that my pains, sufferings, difficulty that I have experienced in my life is a mechanism for God's grace? Now, I want to make some, some statements, okay? All affliction, all of them, is ultimately a result of the fall. It's a result of sin. All of them. If there was no sin, there would be no affliction, okay? God is not the author of sin. God does not direct or command sin. So when Paul calls the affliction a messenger of Satan, we have to remember that God does not direct any temptation in order to orchestrate the possibility of sin. Okay, so I want to say that in regards to when we talk about affliction. Also, I'm going to be the last person that will shun someone's pain, difficulty, tragedy. I'm not going to underplay it. Romans 12 tells us, weep with those who weep. And I am one who does that. Pain and suffering is real. 
and it can be overwhelming. Trust me, I know. It can be long-lasting, and it can be very, very, very heavy. The last thing that you would hear come out of my words if you came up to me and started talking to me about difficulty is, suck it up, buttercup. I'm not going to say it. But with that being said, let's look at something. Let's kind of take out in regards to whatever individually you may have experienced or are experiencing. I want to kind of give us a little bit more of a perspective. Is that what is the most evil thing that ever happened in the world? What is the worst thing that ever happened in the world? The absolute worst. And we think of all these different tragedies that have happened throughout human history. But literally, the worst thing that has ever happened in human history is the death of the Son of God. He is the only perfect, innocent man that has ever lived and that will ever live he was tried in an unjust court. He was falsely accused, and he was murdered by his own people. Would we say that God's grace only operates as a result of that or through it? So let's take our newest box out from underneath the tree of, you know, why me, God? I would say that that question in the midst of difficulty or affliction or suffering, it's the wrong question. So who's the focus of that question? I am. And if me, if I'm saved, if I'm sanctified by God's grace, then who is supposed to be the focus of my life? God himself. The work that he has done for me, the fellowship that I have with him, that is what my life is supposed to be centered on. And I have to explain the moment in which this kind of came and literally rocked me. Um, God grabbed me by my shoulders and shook me, and I'm so thankful for it. So after I found out I needed to have brain surgery, um, I was I was outside. Um, I was you know humanly speaking, I was alone. There was nobody around me, and I was I was praying. I was telling God, I was like, um, you know, God, I am alone. I am I am alone in this. My wife can't help me. My kids can't help me. And I said, what what am I supposed to do with this? Um, I was thinking and focused on what you know Roxy has experienced. Um, I, I I did not hear a divine voice. I do not. I, I did not receive a special message or any of that kind of stuff, but um, I believe that through his spirit that God has given me a, deepest, a deeper understanding in regards to my relationship with him. And that it was almost the fact of, saying, of me saying, God, I am alone. And he says, that's the point. What's your foundation? You have me.
Jesus uses the illustration of the house built on the rock or the house built on the sand. Jesus' words, Sermon on the Mount. He says, he says, everyone who hears these words, it's like a man who builds his house on the rock. We got the wise man built his house on the rock, the foolish man built his house on the sand. The wind and the waves hit both of them. So what is the foundation? Is, is the foundation in health, abilities, family, or your family's faith, your money, your relationships? The wind and the waves will hit you. And the question is, what is your foundation? Because if it was not built on Christ, then great is the fall. And so the question, why me, God? Take it, wrap it up, pour gasoline on it, set it on fire. If you take anything from what I have to share, anything, is that in the midst of pain, or trial, suffering, is this, is that instead of asking, why me, God, or why is this happening, God, it is, God, what are you showing me about yourself? Or, God, I know that you are near. Let me see your grace in this. That is the question to ask. So, would I say that whatever difficulty that you may be experiencing is a mechanism for God's grace? Yes. Yes, it is. I'm not just talking about big things like a brain tumor or financial difficulty or catastrophe. There have been times, I, I tell you folks, there have been times when I'm in the middle of an argument with my wife and it's, it, you know, I have the temptation of, you know, and, and I'm not perfect in this, but in the midst of when there's a pause and I literally take the opportunity, it's like, God, where is your grace in this? And then it's a massive shift because God is starting to show me how is this this disagreement that I am having with my spouse, how is this a mechanism for his grace? And he is starting to show me. Show me. And it is beautiful. How do I form these questions, though? I mean, is this just a Daniel thing? Or is, what does the Bible have to say about that? Well, I'm glad that you asked. So let's go to Romans 5. And this is our... Uh, last new verse that we're going to be going through. You know, I, earlier I read Romans 5, 1 and 2. I'm going to read those again. Therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Now let's move on to verse 3. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit that has been given to us. We read in verse 3, we rejoice in our sufferings, not despite 
our sufferings, not setting our sufferings aside, we get happy. That is in our sufferings. What is the result? Endurance, character, hope, and not being put to shame. So we see when God states to Paul, my grace is sufficient for you, that Paul is able to accept this because God's grace is acting in and through the difficulty. Paul has recognized, verse 10 says, for the sake of Christ, then I am content with my weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecution, and calamities, for when I am weak, then I am strong. His foundation is in Christ. So, God's grace. So, in the midst of that, there's another little point to make. It's very easy for us to ask, you know, when we are praying, when we are pursuing God in the midst of the difficulty, it's very easy for us to pray, God, give me the grace to endure this. Give me the grace to do that. Um, I wouldn't say that's necessarily a bad thing. I think that that is recognizing God's power and asking God for an action and intervention in the midst of our difficulty. But when we, when we pray that, I think it's almost as if we forget who God is and what he has already done for us. that in the Romans 5 verse, we see verse 2, it says, into this grace in which we stand. And through that grace, we have fellowship with God all the time. God has already given you his son to establish the relationship and he has already given you his spirit to indwell in you. You ask for his grace, but it's already there. It's like if you ask for God's grace, God kind of has to say, like, what more do you want from me? I gave you my son and I gave you myself. So, in conclusion, the other box, the first box that was in the tree, the heaviness of God's grace. We have seen God's grace has so many facets in it. Salvation, sanctification, common grace, specific grace, all that kind of stuff. But in those facets, we see that God's grace operates If you are a believer in Christ, if you are saved and sanctified, God's grace operates in everything. Depends on how we recognize 
what he has done, what he is doing, and what he promises that he will do. And we have security in this because of our fellowship with him. So when I titled this sermon, The Heaviness of God's Grace, I mean, that's just, I came up with it because, to be perfectly honest with you, it's too much to bear. And that's awesome. Think of the exhaustiveness of God's grace or the comprehensiveness of God's grace, whatever. But you have been bought by the blood of Christ, baptized by the Holy Spirit, and that you are in fellowship with God by his grace. God causes all things to foster that fellowship with him and for us to actively glorify him and it is beautiful let's pray God your grace John Newton said it is amazing there is no other way that we can uh, approach you in this than to just say Thank you. And I pray that you would help us. Lord, that is my prayer in the midst of not just difficulty, but in the midst of of blessing and joy and that we can see, we can ask like, God, let us to see your grace. Because in the midst of it, God, you are glorified and our fellowship with you is fostered and it is Wonderful. God, I thank you. I thank you for Christ's work on the cross. I thank you for the baptism of the Holy Spirit, God. And I thank you for your promises in Scripture that we know that you are going to be good with and that you are going to fulfill. So, God, I pray that you would help us recognize your grace in our lives that is abundant and beautiful. Amen.